This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with coach and player development manager at Southampton Football Club, Ian Brunsweiler. He discusses his journey into professional football with stops at UK coaching and Hampshire and England cricket, how organisations can better support players on their journey, both developing them holistically and preparing them for the elite level, as well as what stood out to him with playing with some of the great players in modern cricket, such as Kevin Peterson and Shane Warne. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Brunchy, really appreciate you jumping on. This has been a long time in the works and uh, both of us are very busy schedules, but uh, how are things? How was your Christmas? All that type of stuff. Yeah, hi. Very nice to be with you. Uh, Christmas has been fun, a bit different this year um, with a number of positive COVID tests in the house. So we've uh, had a quieter Christmas than usual, but very, very precious family time. So, yeah, we're all all happy and, and thankfully all as healthy as we can be. Good, glad to hear it. So, um, obviously, as, as I mentioned there, I've been really keen to get you on. I think the experiences you've got, and for particularly for me, kind of over multiple sports, is um, really interesting to to discuss. So, for people that maybe don't know you or haven't come across your background, you just want to give us a whistle stop tour of, I guess, some of your playing highlights, and then also um, coaching and coach development work as well. Yeah, no problem. I'll try not to bore everyone. Uh, yeah, so I guess. Football was my first love, played at Southampton's Centre of Excellence, as it was back in the day. Uh, so I trained at the Dell um, back in the early 90s. Um, and then when I went to secondary school, got introduced to cricket, uh, amongst other sports, and found I was OK at catching cricket balls and hitting them as well. So ended up being a professional cricketer at Hampshire. And then um, when I finished as a player, I managed to get a role, part-time role as academy coach. So I worked with Tony Middleton, who's a great sort of been a great influence in my playing and coaching um career and now is still at Hampshire. So um yeah I started working with the academy as a coach and then I just tried to get as many coaching qualifications, any qualifications I could. So I, so I ended up doing multiple roles at Hampshire. So coaching the academy, doing strength and conditioning, the academy and the pros, and then coaching with the pros as well. So over a sort of five or six year period, lots of coaching. And then um, got lucky enough to get a job in England cricket, heading up the national under 17 programs um, and then work with the under 17s and under 19s. So had a pretty much dream job traveling the world with the best young cricketers in the UK. and. Uh, helping them play some cricket and then after that um, cricket became a bit untenable from a family perspective so needed a job in the UK so I worked at UK coaching for about 18 months leading their talent and performance coaching team and that was my first step into coach development so I oversaw a team of coach developers develop Sort of delivering coach development solutions into multiple Olympic sports. So I got a real insight into how the Olympics work and had to kind of help negotiate 
government funding for programs and stuff like that, which was really interesting on a personal level. And then a job came up at Southampton, so a bit of a circle, full circle. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Southampton, so I sort of started as well. Um, so I came into the role of coach development manager at Southampton, and that's where I currently um, do my day job, sort of working with the coaches across the whole of the pathway, really, from under nines all the way up through to the sort of more senior end of the club. Um, yeah, so a bit of a dream. It's a local club. Uh, I live locally and, um, yeah, get to be around some really talented coaches and, and see some really talented players. Very committed man to trade in the West Indies for Southampton. <laughs> Family's done Honestly, very well. It's about this time of year that I give my wife a long look and go, why am I not in Dubai or Sri Lanka right now? <laughs> but then I look at my beautiful children. I think that's why, you know. <laughs> I think if we if we go into reverse with this, it's probably mm. the best place to start. So with your coach development work with Southampton, I guess the first question for me is what uh, drew you to the role and what, yeah, what drew you to the role in the club itself? Yeah, I mean, I've always had a massive passion for the game of football. Um, and as I said, I love, I love the game, support Southampton. Um, I, I'm not a football coach. No, I wasn't. I played at a reasonably high level, um, but I'd never really coached other than you know, helping a few kids out. But having worked, having done the job in Olympic sport, I, the the allure of developing those who coach players became really strong in me. You know, I've, I've always wanted to help others get better at what they do, and I've always loved elite sport. So those are kind of two really strong themes in my sort of personal journey: loving the loving the game, loving helping people try and elite, and also just helping others. So the opportunity to work with a really broad range of coaches, coaching from under sevens, under eights in the pre-academy, all the way through to guys working with the B team and, and the first team. It's it's a really um it was a really alluring role. And I thought it would really challenge me because I'd been in cricket for a long time. I was well established in the game. I could probably go to every single county, first class county in the whole country, and I knew people. So I stepped into a place of challenge, if I'm honest, um, and I really, I really enjoy that. I like going out of my comfort zone. That's something that that drives me, um, and I wanted to prove, probably to myself, that I could do it and that I could go into a sport which is notoriously tricky for people who don't have a massive amount of football credibility and um and see if I could firstly survive and then secondly do some good and, and hopefully with the work I'm doing I'm doing some good so that was gonna be my next question how did you tackle not the lack of credibility I think that's a bit harsh but whereas maybe traditionalists would go you know head of coaching or head of coach management needs to be someone who's been on the pitch for 15 20 years or has played the game at Premier League level etc how did you feel (laughs) coming in from an outside perspective and did that have any positives for you or negatives yeah it's a great question I mean firstly I'd have to say a big thank you to Ed Vaid and, and Matt Hale, who were the academy manager and assistant academy manager um, who brought me in. 
um, and, and Martin Hunter, who was the technical director at the time, but for, I guess taking a bit of a risk on me because it is a risk to bring in someone who doesn't have the football credibility, and I'm, you know, I'm very comfortable with the fact I don't. Um, I guess it's all trade-offs, though, isn't it? You know, I've coached and played at a very high level, albeit in a different sport, and I believe personally that coaching is coaching. Um, and the, the the absolute core skills of coaching are very transferable across multiple sports. You obviously then just need to have above the line knowledge of the sport in order to be able to um, to work in that in that environment. And I, I would describe it that I probably had just just enough football credibility to uh, to engage in the conversations. And look. I mean, you're a great example, righty, of someone who, when I came into the role, I'm working with, you know, potentially up to about six to five different coaches, ranging from part-time coaches in the pre-academy who do a couple of hours a week to um, full-time under-23s coaches. There's a broad range of human beings there with different experiences. I would say the vast majority of those coaches are just keen for anyone with some knowledge about coaching to help them so there was a real you know I think that the work Matt and Ed and everyone else had done at the club there was a real culture of development already people wanted to get better so they were really interested to know what I thought of their coaching what I thought about coaching in general so I just engaged in conversations um, I wasn't naive enough to think that Let's take a look at the, at the time when I came into the club in our professional development phase. I mean, God, who were the under-18s coaches had probably played 600 professional games between them. The under-23s lead coach had played 100 international games of football. So that's a slightly different challenge for someone who, understandably, they would just think, like, who's this cricket player? So uh, I would not... I don't think I'd be worth my salt if I approached those profile of coaches in the same way I might approach a coach who's currently doing a sports science degree they're a 21 year old they're open-minded you know they're just different different propositions so, so I guess sorry long-winded answer but I, had, I just had to think about what what might each of these individuals in front of me um, need from me and that's probably different and I think there's probably a real transfer there just from for coaching, isn't it? It's like having a squad of players in front of you. You've got your best player at one end. You've got your, your lad who's with the least confidence at the other end. You're going to have to coach differently, aren't you? So, so yeah, I just, tried to, I just tried to engage in conversations, find out what people were interested in, what, motivated, what they were trying to get out of their own coaching. And then I could start trying to provide some support that we were coaching. So, yeah, I think that's a really nice example you've used there in terms of the the differences between, you know, in that pathway. So you will have people that have played, you know, 600 league games or whatever it is and probably have experienced some very top managers as well as players that have gone on to really excel. And you also have individuals that have just come out of university that are, you know, kind of fresh and open to to really new ideas or kind of enthusiastic to learn everything so for you as a practitioner looking to develop those 
what type of initial conversations you have in to establish what areas that they need to work on or would like to work on and what areas actually is already a super strength for them. So for the time being, we can keep that plodding along, but that might not be something that we focus on. Mm. Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's something I wrangled with at the outset. If I'm honest, I, I was still a relatively novice coach developer. You know, I'd have done a lot of player development. <clears throat> um, at the heart of it, though, again, I think there's a lot of similarities, which is, you know, my, my first question is always, like, just tell me about you. I want to know your biography. I, I want to understand your journey to how you're standing here on this training pitch in front of me right now, because if I can understand that, that will help me understand you as a person. And if I, because if I can't understand you as a person, then it's going to be very difficult for me to you and me identify any areas for support so that would be almost my start my starting point as a coach developer is trying to understand the person in front of me and then within that um, trying to understand um, what is it that this person is is after like what's their motivation because some coaches want to be the next Man United manager and some coaches want to be the best under 11s coach they, they can be for Southampton Football Club. Again, so those two things are different and they take different skill sets. So, um, yeah, understanding the person, understanding their motivation. And then a big one, which I certainly didn't think was that relevant at the outset, but now I think is really, really relevant, is trying to help the person become aware of what they're currently doing and raising their own awareness. It's, it's been a fascinating project. Um, I mean, you, you, you know this, right, but I, I've sort of coded coaching behaviours, I've recorded coaches, I've played videos back to them, you know, I've done all the sort of coach development style interventions. And all of those interventions really are to help the coach get a picture of themselves. Because if I go back 10 or 12 years, let's go back, to whatever 10 years ago I'm coaching head coach of the England 17s I was probably doing some stuff quite well and I was probably starting to do some stuff really rubbish you know I didn't I didn't have anyone following me around showing me videos of my team talks and going that's interesting that you said this or you know I thought this was great but what about when you said this I think I lost the group there so that kind of raising of self-awareness I think is really important um, and a combination of these factors about understanding the person, understanding their motivations and understanding their current practice. If you try and merge those together, that's when I think things start going, okay, well, what, what is it that, that might be helpful? And that could be a range of things. Yeah, so obviously I think if you look at like tech tap type support I think that's easy for coaches to go and work on you know you can either go on courses or you can sit in a canteen previous to COVID and you know you can hash that out with your analysis or other coaches and learn and develop that skill Mm -hmm. what you said there around having a level of self-awareness about how your actions or words or team talks affect the group that can be something that obviously you can get it played back to you, but it's obviously at the moment, isn't it? If you're in a halftime team talk, one word all of a sudden can change the entire mood of what that group or team or individual's feeling. So how do you get people to, I guess, get better at that 
and understanding mm-hmm. that a single word or a single phrase could have either really positive consequences or negative yeah, it's a good question. It's and certainly not a simple or easy answer, as none of these are when it comes to human development. Um, so I can tell you what I know or think now. It will probably have changed in two years' time when I listen back to this. I think the, fir- the, the first step is raising awareness of what they're doing. So I know we've covered that already, but it's really, really important. That until you know, until someone's played it back to you, you might not know that you say, um, every third word or you have a really weird, you know, I know that I move around a lot, right? you can see it now. I'm a really like, I've probably got ADHD or something. And I know that that can really put people off <clears throat> if I'm coaching them. So I, I've been made aware of that. And therefore I've got an opportunity to do something about it. So now if I choose to be really still and calm, uh, this is this is taking me energy, but I'm being, and I know this is a podcast, so it's not a great example, <laughs> but I'm, I'm choosing to do something which is developmentally um, difficult for me okay so the first thing is unless I was made aware of that by somebody else or by watching a video of myself on an interview or something like that I wouldn't know so the first step is do they know so let's say a coach repeats themselves loads of times they, they probably aren't aware of it until they've until they've had it played back to them and that I think is when the the, the sort of difficult bit or the real skill piece comes in is to go right if this is the issue we think is important to resolve what's our plan <clears throat> and, and that I guess that can be totally different based on what it is you're trying to change um, so I'll give you an example an example from someone you know really really well um, so one of our extremely high potential coaches is a guy called Gary McDermott um and gary has worked with younger age groups at the club for a number of years now he's a very skillful very reflective coach so when i first started doing um observations of gary it became really obvious and he won't mind me saying this but, um it became really obvious that he just got so passionately involved in the game whether it's training or, or matches particularly matches it was like verbal diarrhea from the sideline. And so I would, I use a coding system, which is a kind of amalgamated system that um, there's lots of different coding systems for coding coaches. I've got one that we, we've used in-house now for a few years. And I showed him the output of his uh, efforts from the sideline. And I guess, I think this is a really key point as well. I, I, I try and show this stuff without judgment. I just said, this is what happened. So I said, look, here you go, guys. In an 80-minute game of football, the statistics are that you made 320 comments to the pitch. Or something like that. I can't remember the numbers, but it was about that. It was high. I was like, so that's, you know, whatever that whatever that works out at for a minute. One every 15. So every 15 seconds, you're shouting. Just went, well, you know, what are your thoughts? And Gaz is a really smart, reflective guy. He went, oh, God, that's really a bit much, isn't it? So he's had that awareness raised that he's shouting a lot and that might not be what the players need. It might be. Um, and this will maybe come on to another point about what's your intention. <clears throat> but he can now do something about it. So Gaz did. We talked about it and we were like, right, well, how are we going to try and do something different? And Gaz came up with this, in fact, 
he said, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put um, six uh, stones in my right pocket. And in each quarter, because the game's split into three, uh, sorry, four. In each quarter, I'm only going to say six things. And every time I say it, I'm going to take the stone out of one pocket and put it in the other. And I know that once those stones have gone across, I can't take them out. So it's quite an extreme intervention, but it is something that's made a massive difference. Now, we don't want Gaz just to say six things a quarter because it might it might need to be more than that based on the context of the game. But you get the point. So raise the awareness, then discuss what the options are, and then just come up with a plan. Like let's have a go, you know, uh, and then have some way of checking in on that plan. So I, I don't know if that's answered the question. No, that's really good. It's quite a unique way of doing it as well, and I think that sometimes you know, coaches can be afraid to think outside the box a little bit, but that's quite a nice one in terms of you can share it with others if you want, or you can just keep it to yourself. But actually it's, it's a really conscious way of going, right, I'm going to improve on this area, um, which is really good. I guess off, off the back of that, having worked with Gaz and, and knowing Gaz, but also in, in my opinion, I could be wrong, he might disagree, <clears throat> actually working quite well together. I think we bounce off one another quite well. Do you think that this is where coaching pairs and coaching dynamic is really important? Because you may have someone like Gaz, who's high energy, high passion, very talkative. If you get in with someone else who's like that, all of a sudden the information that's flying to the group is, you know, a 15 minute team talk isn't long enough. Whereas actually, if you've got someone who's maybe slightly more reserved and can re- is really good at summarising points, Gaz may say those interventions and you've got someone at the end who goes, right, this is what Gaz has just said. Three, two, one, off you go. Do you think that that's the importance of coaching pairs? And do you think that that's something moving forward we're going to see more and more, I guess, care taken with who, who coaches end up working with? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think it's, and it's been a real focus for us since I've been at the club, if I'm honest, right? He, he's trying to work out what are the best possible matchups of coaches that we can get? And I'd extend it further to say, and and MDT. I think we're you know, we're constantly striving to to think how can we do things better, because the coaching pair, the dynamic between them, as you say, is absolutely vital. Because if you get there's there's trade offs, aren't there? There's trade offs in all directions. But if you can if you can match up coaches who provide something different for the players that's going to give them a better chance of having a better experience then if you think about the mdt because you've also got we've got such talented scientists and psychologists and analysts you know the work that we're doing now in terms of the analysis team and the role they play in the coaching week is massively expanded from them just coding video footage you know someone like connor cole who's working with our under 16s at the moment you know Connor was an intern but now he's he's on the side of the pitch with a live video stream in training the players are coming over to him and the coaches are just getting out of the way and allowing Connor to deliver some coaching to the players like this is this is brilliant because Connor will bring something different than Danny or Jez you know the, the, the technical coaches and then you might have the S&C coach able to deliver so I think yes coaching pair dynamic is incredibly important and also let's think about the whole dynamic 
because all of these adults in a youth development perspective are all having an influence on the learning environment. And I think a big piece of work, not only for us, but in all in all sort of areas of sport is what is the role of each practitioner during each contact point? You know, what, what are they doing? Because one of my observations, probably more so in football than in any of the other sports I've worked in, is I'll turn up to training and there'll be quite a lot of people there because you know football's a well-resourced game. You know, we're I'm working in a category one Premier League Academy, you know, there's lots of jobs, lots of people. And a lot of them are watching training while one person delivers it. That's probably doing it a disservice, but we've got to be more intelligent than that, haven't we? We've got to have roles specific to that moment. And that takes a bit of humility as well, because if the head coach is leading a technical session. Firstly, I mean, an obvious one, what is their coaching partner doing? So do they have, do they have another focus? Could they be zooming in on some individuals or on a unit or looking at something different? But what's the SMC coach doing? They could be focusing on the individual development plan of some movement patterns of a, of a player or the analyst could be looking at some stuff. So that kind of role clarity during contact points is vital. Um, Going right back to your initial question about coaching pairs, I think I think we we and other clubs and different sports will be doing more and more about understanding the individual. And we've got all sorts of psychometrics available, haven't we, and profiling tools. And we've done some stuff in-house around, you know, like a merged model of various bits to go like, what's this person bringing and what does the environment need? Um, and what the environment probably needs is a bit of diversity because if you've got too much of the same you're probably missing out on x percentage of the players thriving um so yeah i'll hang that one out there you might <laughs> yeah no I, I think it's a really good point and i, I think that that's why probably uh, me and gaz got on quite well because we're different in our delivery so actually it allowed the whole group to improve because whilst maybe the people he engaged with it allowed them to flourish in a particular way and maybe the ones that are more challenging for him to engage with that's probably the area that I picked up quite nicely so between us we, we kind of covered the group which was quite quite interesting I guess linking to the last point that you said around having metrics to kind of assess what people's strengths and weaknesses might be um, how do you go around doing that and figuring out what pair may be optimal or what pair may work very well together yeah yeah that's a great question it's definitely not one I or we have solved that is for sure but I think my current stance would be you, you need lots of information I think the one of the hard challenges is we're always trying to find a golden bullet aren't we oh just do this one test and we'll know everything about you like it just doesn't it simply doesn't work that way so we we do lots of stuff and we try and merge it all together so um we use as i've said psychometrics so we'll get a kind of a psychometric profile which across the club is, is standardized so that gives a piece of information um we've got a coaching philosophy so we've used that in a number of different ways but it's a series of statements but actually we've used it as a profiling tool to kind of go well look of these 11 statements rate yourself about what you think your strengths and weaknesses are and then also your phase lead will rate you and your peer coach can provide some intel so we use our coaching philosophy we've done something called the thrive framework 
which looks at the kind of human elements of uh, coaching behavior, like the psycho, psychosocial bits and physical bits. Um, and then we get player feedback. Player feedback, I think, is incredibly important. It's, again, you go back to that point about um, raising awareness. Lots of the coaches have had some things raised about them they maybe didn't know or think um, before. Um, and then observations from my, myself or members of the coach development team or phase leads. So if you think about that kind of picture, I think I've named sort of five or six different elements there. If you, if you merge all those together, you get a, a sort of reasonably well-informed view of a coach as an individual practitioner. And then you can go, right, well, that's kind of our view of coach A. And then we've got the rest of these coaches and we've got similar information from them, like, who do we think might work best together given this range of information we've got about them? So definitely not got it solved, but I think the headline would be if you've got quite a lot of information from quite a lot of different sources, then you're more well informed to make a better decision. Perfect. And so leading on to this, and it's something we've discussed a little bit. Um, I remember being at a dinner table with you and, and, and discussing this out in Inter Milan, um, which is around kind of at the top end, players taking more accountability for their development or their performance. And I think what we're talking around about there, sorry, around coaching pairs and stuff, obviously when it gets to first team level, ultimately it does come down to results on a Saturday or at the moment, a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Tuesday, Thursday, <laughs> and all, all of that type of stuff. So you may not have a manager that is overly fussed about your whole characteristic and he may be focused on tech tack and winning on the Saturday. How do you go around preparing a player for that environment, that jump, where they may have gone through, you know, this entire pathway of, you know, all this thoughtful care, maybe coddling a little bit to actually, listen, winning on a Saturday is the be-all and end-all for us ultimately. Yeah, that's a great question. It's the one that keeps us all awake, isn't it? Um, I think going back to very, very headline principles, so if we go back to the development pathway, I know it's a sort of phrase that's banded around a lot, but I do believe it's very relevant, which is around high challenge and high support. And um, certainly, um, you know, I learned a lot about this working in the cricket world. But very, very lucky to the, the guy who was my boss at England Cricket was a bloke called Simon Timpson, who's, you know, he's gone on to be the director of performance for the Olympic sports for the 2012 Olympics and 2016 Olympics. Then he was director of performance at British Tennis, and now he's director of performance at Man City. So this guy's pretty good at what he does. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I feel incredibly fortunate to have spent quite a lot of time with Simon in some quite formative years as a practitioner. And we were trying to solve this problem. You know, Simon's vision was how do we have an oversupply of international ready young cricketers? That was our goal that it was a development program. So um you know and the key principle and, and it, simon changed it slightly his view was it's high challenge preceded by high support yeah so so using that principle um that guided our practice and, and we wanted players to 
have experienced um, elements of both a training and playing program that meant that when they stepped over the white line or the white rope in cricket into the international arena, they had had relevant experiences that had led them to that point. Um, I was very lucky to work again with a guy called Mo Boba. So Mo's currently the performance director in cricket. So Mo and I started on the same day and we were trying to solve this problem. You know, how do we, how do we, how do we produce game ready international cricketers? Like, we don't know how to do it, but we're going to have a right go at it. So I think our, our, our theory, and it would continue to be my theory, is you can't go into a game uh, at the MCG in front of 80,000 people if you've never experienced anything that's even close to that. So how do we, you're unlikely to be able to replicate that because you can't just get 8,000 people to the MCG and also have the authentic pressure that comes with that. But what you can do is you can expose players to experiences that might replicate elements of that. And then you're trying to build like a, like a tool belt of resources within those players. So um, that, that I think is, that, that's at the heart of it, is going, well, what are the requirements? The requirements are, if you're going to play Premier League football or international cricket or be an Olympic athlete that steps out onto the track in front of a big crowd, like, what are the bits of that, that that are going to challenge you? And therefore, what are the strategies, internal strategies, that you're going to need to be able to have at your disposal that can help you take on those challenges. Uh, some of those are going to be skill-based. So being able to deal with a short ball on a bouncing deck in cricket is definitely going to be needed. Being able to be robust enough to run around a lot for 90 minutes is also going to be needed if you're football or being physically capable of cycling around that track or running. So there's some skills and some physical stuff. My personal view is the stuff that really, really differentiates at the top, top level is the cycle. Um, so how do you actually deal with it? How do you deal with the media slating you leading into the game or, um, or the pressure you personally feel because you know you've got your whole family and friends watching you? So, so these are the sort of things that I think we need to, and I don't think we're particularly good at it, if I'm honest. I think we can do a lot better at it is what is the requirements of this environment? across the most holistic uh, of, of venues, you know, even like managing yourself at home when you've not got your food laid out for you. What are the requirements? And then where are you now? And then how do we plot a path so that you've got a better chance of dealing with those requirements when it comes to it? And that I think is at the absolute heart of, of having players that are ready to, to step into that environment. So when we're talking about and we'll use the the MCG example. I think it's very poignant at the moment, but uh, we won't go into too much detail on that. But when you're looking at around the psychological factors of preparing someone for that, because like you said, like even for for me growing up, who I watched cricket, I wasn't, I, I didn't play it extensively until secondary school and whatnot, but I was aware of the Boxing Day tests. You know, that's it's a really big thing out in Australia and in the Ashes and all of that type of stuff. How do you go around psychologically preparing an individual for that environment 
be it for some of them when they're 24, 25 years of age? How do you go around plotting a course to say, actually, these are the type of experiences they can have that will maybe help prepare them? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's a very difficult question to answer and it's, it's very individualised. Again, I've been, I've been lucky to work with some incredible sport psychologists, performance psychologists in my, in my time, and I've seen lots of strategies and, and efforts. But I think in principle, if you can expose them to things that are of a similar level of challenge and then help them to understand how they personally, or as an individual, are more effective under that level of strain, then you're giving yourself a chance. So that's probably not a brilliantly simple answer, but I don't know. Let's say, let's say it's going to be really like, let's say the MCG, it's going to be 38 degrees. It's going to be really hot and you're probably going to have a load of angry, drunk Australians yelling at you. So this is, that's not everything that's the challenge, but that's some of the challenge. So you can probably go, right, well, that's about being under physical duress, that it's hard. Uh, you know, it's hot, so physically difficult, and you've got some people who are being really negative towards you. So you can do all sorts of training about that, can't you? Like you could send people, and 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 you know, all this stuff goes on, isn't it? You know, you can go off and do a military training camp where it's incredibly physically hard, and a big, you know, ugly army bloke shouting at you. So that's replicating some elements. But the point is, how do you deal with it? So what's your own strategy? So I might deal with that by in a different way than you do, righty. Like, I might go, right, I know I'm really physically well-trained. I'm fit as, a, fit as a butcher's dog. So actually, that gives me the confidence I can handle this. Okay, I can handle this physically. And then I've got a personal strategy that if people are negative towards me from the crowd or if the army guy who's, I'm going to, I've got some psychological strategies that I go, I know I'm a good person. Uh, I know I can handle this. I've handled it before. They're only words. I don't know. I'm just making it up as I go along like that. But it's a strategy. So when I'm walking out to bat and it's hot and I've got some Aussies giving me some jip, I've got some strategies that give me a better chance of self-regulating at that time. And then, you know, other elements of the challenge are I'm going to have, you know, Hazelwood and Cummings charging in at me. So I've done a load of skill training. So I've done bouncer practice. I've done sidearm. I've done all this stuff. I know I can deal with a short ball. I know, I, I know my technique's strong. So I can self-regulate on that, can't I? So I, I, think, I think at the heart of it, it's having your own menu of psychological options to, to, put, to call on to meet the, the need of the environment at that moment. And like any sort of skill, if you've got more skills available and they're more well-practiced, you're just giving yourself a better chance, aren't you? But even then, I mean, bloody hell, look what happened the first ball of the Ashes. Rory Burns, I don't know how many tests he's played. He must have played 25 or 30 tests. He's an experienced international cricketer. Yeah, he's faced the best bowlers in the world for the last couple of years. Even then, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing it here, he's standing there ready to face that first ball. Where his head went and where his front foot went is not where they normally go. Like, and that's pressure. That's what pressure does to us. If he was playing at the Oval against, you know, for, against Hampshire, he wouldn't have been in that same position because he wouldn't have felt the same amount of pressure. He'd have, had, he'd have hit, he'd have clipped that ball through the leg side. 
but that's the that is the beauty of the the challenge we're trying to take on at the very very top level is it is incredibly high levels of pressure and what pressure does to human beings is it makes us stupid it makes us do dumb stuff so the battle is how can i do less dumb stuff under the highest amount of pressure that's what i reckon i think it's really interesting um and you look at what are perceived top performance and the interesting ones for me are the ones that almost come across as if they don't care. Um, I remember playing with a lad called Angelo Belanta, and I've told this story before. We're playing away at Plymouth, <clears throat> which isn't a nice journey for anyone. Um, but he missed a penalty and started laughing. And so like some of the lads are obviously absolutely fuming. But then two minutes later, he's got the ball cut inside and whipped it top corner and scored. And for me, I was like, that's almost like a get out for him. It feels like psychologically, that's his way to deal with it is to go, actually, if I act and I'm carefree, it allows me the ability to lose like the negative outcomes that happen of me losing the ball or being played round or whatnot to then carry on and play my natural game. And I look at someone like, again, Kevin Peterson, who you, who you'll know for him, number of times he would have got out trying to play expansive shots of hitting it over and miss cueing it or whatever but actually it flips it the other way when he's doing it and he's on form it's putting pressure on the other person because they're thinking oh god kp's going off here and you almost roll reverse it in <clears> terms of what should be a pressurized situation for him he's gone well, now i'll let you you deal with that because now you're worrying about what i'm doing and it's quite a balancing act in terms of if you can negate that, it just shifts where that pressure continuum goes, really. 100%. And it, I know it's a throwaway style, a well-used phrase, isn't it? But, it? but pressure is perspective, isn't it? It's, it's, only our own, it's only ourselves telling us that it's pressure. And, and your point there, like, if you just didn't care, like if you did not care one iota about the crowd at the MCG or who, was, who you were bowling, you know, who was bowling at you, you'd be able to perform much better. It's because we care and we make a big thing of it, either consciously or subconsciously, that's why we get stuff so badly wrong. And that's why some of, you know, there's a big prevalence, there's a prevalence in elite, lots of things for people who are on the sort of scale of psychopathy, isn't there? Like if you're a psychopath, <laughs> probably going outside of my remit here but there's there's a big field of work uh certainly in cricket around the kind of the dark triad of psychopathy machiavellianism and narcissism because again if you're a narcissist um and there's different types of narcissism it's actually probably helpful to take on the world's best at something and if you you know if you don't care as much about what people think about you it's probably helpful so it's it's fascinating to me right too that yeah i've been very very lucky i've coached and played with and against genuine best in the world you know i've, I've hung around with the likes of war shane warne and you know peterson with the hampshire and didn't spend much time with him but i Got to see him operate a bit and, and you know, my time at England cricket, some people, you know, were, got to know Andy Flower quite well. 
as well as I've been lucky enough to get to know the likes of Floyd Woodrow, who's probably one of the best soldiers who's been in the world, you know, top, top SAS guy who was then head of selection for the SAS. And, you know, these people are a slightly different breed, even to those who operate at a decent level. You know, Andy Flower was the number one batsman in the world and then became coach of the team that went to number one in the world. Yeah, he's a he's a unique animal. Um, and he does stuff a bit different than other people. Um, so these these guys are just elite on a different level. You know, Warren was just a different guy. And so I feel like I don't know any of the <clears throat> I don't know Warren or Peterson or Flower well enough to really give you any insight i've seen them operate and i've seen that they just do stuff and deal with stuff slightly differently than than us other mere mortals <clears throat> and i think it's to do with how they deal with pressure personally so looking at the way they deal with stuff i think warns a good example as you said you kind of spent a bit of time around with him looking at the way that he would have dealt with situations be it a low a low score set about you know as a as a team you set a low score in a one day and you're trying to de- defend it to get them out or the way he approached his overs and his craft and stuff what was so unique around him or what is there anything in particular you can describe that would say actually this is what made him potentially the best spin bowler ever mm. um i mean i don't i don't know enough about his background i mean other than what i've read i know one of the things he did was he practiced an enormous amount as a young bloke and he's, he honed his craft. So he honed his craft and he had incredible, incredible control. Um, so he was an amazing, he was an amazing performer. By the time he came to Hampshire, when I was there, you know, he was already the world's best bowler. Basically. Um, I think the thing that I observed that stood out was just the positive attacking mentality and the genuine belief that he could win any game regardless of what situation like it was so different it was so eye-opening to me you know like I'd come through a private schoolboy's cricketing career you know being a pro for four or five years or whatever it was and you know I tried really hard and then I saw this guy and he just he was just like no we can win this game we'll we'll declare 120 ahead and we'll have a bowl at him for the last session and a half but why wouldn't we it was just so different than anything I'd ever seen or experienced before. <clears throat> um, so the kind of the inner genuine, and I think it was genuine, authentic belief that he could win was the, the likes of which I've never, ever seen anything close to. I couldn't believe it. So, and then that gives others around you just confidence, doesn't it? I mean, A, you've got the best bowler in the world bowling from one end. <clears throat> so that helped. But he genuinely believes he can win. It's a bit like, you know, you watch military army movies, don't you? And you've just got someone like the military smart commander, you know, he says a rousing speech. and goes, come on, lads, we'll go into this battle and we'll go and win. And they're like, well, hang on, there's a thousand of them. There's only a hundred of them. You're like, yeah, but we can still win. Like, it's that sort of, it's almost bizarre. But then the people are start looking around and going, oh, well, if he believes we can, then we probably can. And I think there's something in there, right, here about like, unshakable belief in yourself and those around you that you can win any situation and that's what I observed and sometimes we won sometimes we lost but you still believe we can win every game 
It's mad. I guess linking that back to where we are with the, the test team, the one-day team at the minute, do you think that that's maybe where the differences in format are? Because obviously it's a lot of the same players, isn't it, that are crossing over formats. But actually, you look at the T20 and the one-dayers, and I know that there's a skill element to this as well. But actually, there's a belief in that squad. It's like, doesn't matter who we play against. We'll probably beat them, or we're going to be in with an opportunity. Whereas the t- the discussion around the tour coming up, everyone was like, oh, Jesus, this is going to be a bloodbath, which obviously subsequently it has been. Do you think that that is part of it in terms of the mindset of the players going into that environment and going, well, we're probably a bit undercooked. We haven't, you know, got the best record of late, blah, blah, and then all those things just slowly eke out and manifest manifest themselves. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, look, I don't know what the stats are, but not many people go to Australia and win, do they? Let's be honest. It must be only a handful in the last 10 years, 15 years. So statistically, you're at a pretty challenging baseline. <laughs> so the baseline stat is you're probably going to lose. And then if you're underprepared, that's not going to help because, and that's not controllable, is it, with the current COVID situations? Like, we haven't played much cricket, you know? So um, probably undercooked. I can't remember how it unfolded, but we didn't get many warm up games, did we? So, again, all of these things will impact your level of belief that you can win. And then if the first ball of the tournament, you, your opening batter gets cleaned up. You know, if you had like a barometer for levels of belief we can win, it's starting to go in the wrong direction, isn't it? Because I think, and again, it's a really interesting contrast to the one day team and the T20 team. They've got lots and lots of evidence at the moment that they can win games of cricket. They've spent the last five or six years winning lots of games of cricket. So they go into each game thinking we can win this game. And there's quite a lot of evidence to show they can. Um, so I think the mindset and belief, and then look, you can you can just see it happening. As over the last, I've watched quite a bit of it over the last couple of weeks. You can just see the belief on a trajectory down, can't you? I haven't watched that much. <laughs> it's over well, quite quick. But, no, I, I get what you mean there. And it is one of those ones where you're looking at it and you're go- people are then doing things they wouldn't normally do. They're acting in ways they wouldn't normally act. And you can see, like, it's a it's team rest. You almost want to put your arm around and be like, listen, yeah. just come home. We'll reset yeah. when we yeah. get home. But just Have come home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you do. But you're dead right. I was chatting to one of my good friends, an Ashes winner himself. And, you know, I was having a few messages with him the other night. And he was just like, 3 0 down, in a, you're getting hammered. Like, it's awful, absolutely awful, you know. And um, I think, in and amongst it, though, you've got Joe Root having the most remarkable year of test batting. So you've got one bloke whose belief in himself is sky high. He's, you know, he's an incredible batter. Um, I think I saw the stat that the third highest run scorer for us this calendar year is extras. So in and amongst it, you've got Root, who's on a different level. To, you know, he's in the top two or three bats in the world. Jimmy Anderson, you know, without doubt, 
now you know the greatest seam bowler of all time you know i watched him bowl the spell the other night and he just had it on a string you know he he's still a world-class bowler <clears throat> i mean he's nearly 40 but he's still doing the business he could have, he should have got five for the other night you've got root and, and anderson who are their belief in their own abilities this is what the sort of theme we're going on here is it's, it's sky high and then you've got a lot of players who either you know stokes has had a very challenging period of time he's still a world-class player but he's, he's not had as much cricket and then you've got some really really decent young players you know some of the lads i've been very fortunate to work with the likes of hasib amid and ollie pope you know these guys are going to be top top players but they're they're in a cauldron aren't they you know i think hasib has um held himself incredibly well this series really he's had a couple of you know really good balls that have got him out and he's made a couple of made a couple of poor shots that happens doesn't it but i, I guess the theme is belief like root and anderson's belief will be high you've got other lads belief which will be lower and then you've got the aussies who are relentless in their own backyard their own belief in themselves will be very high so dragging it right back if this this comes back to coaching and coach development for me which is our number one goal as developers of players or developers of coaches we should be helping them develop belief in themselves i think that's that's the, the absolute heart of it if if you think about you as a player right or if i think about me as a player my best innings or my best games of football i played is when i was confident in myself and i felt i had the skills to deal with the challenges that were in front of me so surely as coaches we have to be building belief and if we're not i think we should be asking ourselves some really tough questions you know did i really need to be negative to that player did it was it helpful for me to um point out how, how rubbish they're playing at the moment like was that really helpful or should i be going all right you're not playing that well at the moment let's think about what what you're like when you're at your best what's you at your best what does it feel like when you're on top form or what are the skills you need to take you closer to being top form like this is the heart of it isn't it I think it's really interesting. You're right. If, when people got confidence themselves, it's, it's a different proposition, really. And I think that unless you're being purposeful and you're trying to put a sticky patch in for a player because actually they're high performing and you want a bit of high challenge for them and you know you're purposeful around it, and then you tell them of that intention, the, the bit of a coach would be that they you know feel confident walking out onto any pitch or any court or whatever it is, and they go regardless of what happens here, I've got the full backing of my coach who's going to help me get better, be it win, lose or draw. Mm. Um, I love the phrase, comfort the challenge, comfort the challenged and challenge the comfortable. Yeah. Which is to your point, the time when you might be hard on a player or negative on a player is when they're flying and you're thinking, I'm not making this hard enough for them. That goes back to that initial point about high challenge, high support, doesn't it? Like if you've got a lad in your under-16s who's, who's scoring goals for fun or keeping on scoring hundreds every week, whatever, the challenge probably isn't high enough for them at that time. So they need to experience success, of course, but they also need to be challenged. Because if, 
because they're going to get it at some point. So you're letting them down. If you just let players succeed all the way through the pathway, then they're going to hit a speed bump at some point. And it's probably not a wise idea for that first speed bump to be when they hit the international stage or the Premier League stage, because they won't have the skills to deal with it. Uh, 100%. And one, one thing that we've spoken about previously, and you told me a story about a fast bowler in the, the West Indies tour, which is around players taking accountability. So obviously, when we're talking about high level of challenge, this could be one where actually you say, you know what, come <clears> up with a strategy to get this player out or go and do the warm up yourselves in the younger ones or whatever that looks yeah. like, or make sure that all the equipment we need is ready on that bus to go at 10 o'clock and basically giving them ownership to say, this is your team. Can we get to <laughs> stage where actually you do everything and we're here as a resource when you need us. Mm. Um, can you talk through that story? If you're allowed to around the fast bowler and your, uh, you said to everyone about the necessary of being hydrated um, and, and what that led to you as a team um, and the challenges that, that set for you as a team? Yeah, uh, I, can, I can talk through in principle. I won't name any names, but I was coaching a team and uh, we were playing a very important game <clears throat> to us of, <clears throat> of cricket. Um, and we had a set of team values that we'd all agreed upon around how we were going to get the best out of ourselves and each other. One of those values was that we were in a hot country at the time. It wasn't actually West Indies, it was a different country. We were in a hot country and we said every player has to take accountability to bring their own water bottle to every game, otherwise you won't play. And uh, we turned up and our opening bowler, who has now played international cricket, <clears throat> is a very good bowler, hadn't brought his water bottle. And we had a very difficult team meeting where we got around and we said, we're playing a really important game here, um, but we've agreed this as a team. And yeah, ultimately, it was a very simple answer, wasn't it? We'd be compromising our team values if we let him play, because we've agreed he won't play, so he didn't play. And, you know, I hope he's never forgotten his water bottles. <laughs> yeah, it's a really, um, look, it's a really important point, Nighty, for me, personally. Um, and it's a piece of work I've been doing in my current role, certainly with our uh, older age group teams, is around helping the coaches to allow the players to take more accountability for stuff. So, um, you know, look in our in our B team environment now, um, we have player led pre match meetings. We have player led game reviews. Um, you know, we've got players standing in front of their peers delivering tactical information or calling each other out. Now, we've not, we've not got it perfect, but we're making progress because I think historically what I've seen in the older age groups of football coaching is some extremely talented, skillful coaches who've got a lot to say, saying a lot of stuff to players. And that's not always the best learning environment, in my opinion. So I feel very, very privileged and fortunate to be working with under-18s and under-23s coaches who are open-minded enough to do things a bit differently at the moment. Um, and for me, the players are getting better. I think that we're at a club where in the under-9s to under-16s programme, this has been going on for 
a number of years because they get it, you know, they get the fact that player involvement in learning is paramount. <clears throat> but unless there's a level of accountability to the players, then we're, we're all, we're doing them a disservice. I think there's a lot to come in this space because we still bust them around, give them food, wash their clothes for them. You know, I don't think they get a really true experience of what it's like to be a early 20s sports person, especially when most of them won't be playing Premier League. They'll be playing a much, much lower level. So, <laughs> again, it, I, I'm obviously getting old because I'm thinking, oh, back in my day, you know, as, a, as an 18-year-old, I just finished my A-levels and I was, I'd signed a pro contract. And have to send me out to Australia for five and five and a half months on my own. Now that was dual a dual purpose because a I was going to go out and play Australian grade cricket and you know, experience some really really good skill development. But b I, I lived in what I would fondly call a luxury porter cabin. You know I was basically lived in a porter cabin with a couple of other English blokes. I had to wash my own clothes. I had to learn how to cook because my mum, bless her, had cooked all my food for me. And, you know, I probably knew how to do beans on toast and fish fingers. That was about it. But for five months, I had to look after myself. I had to budget. I had to earn a little bit of money working as a, as a um, porter at the Hilton Hotel in Southampton. So I got a bit of money with me and I had to work out how to survive. Now, for me... The life skills I learned having to manage my own time and manage my own um, money and cook and clean and wash my clothes, that was incredibly important for me as a young sportsman. But that's a very, very different experience to what a current under 18 footballer is getting in the Premier League Category 1 Academy. And I think, yes, of course, we have to provide a world-class or you know aspiring to be a world-class environment we also have to help them learn to be a good young human and you've got we've got a life skills program which is excellent um you know we've got really good staff everywhere but my sense is we do a bit too much um so there's 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 some stuff we can do a bit better i reckon yeah it's really interesting i actually listened to a podcast yesterday under the kosh one which obviously normally is full of banter that matt mills was on there talking about his career um and one of the things he he was discussing and this is just his opinion on it is that we don't actually allow the younger players necessarily to always make mistakes because managers is so technical and tactical what they're asking to do and so specific that that transfers over to all walks of life where we say to them, don't make a mistake by being late because you're actually you've got the bus in rather than being chauffeured in or whatever that is. Or, you know, don't make a mistake by getting food poisoning because you've undercooked your chicken, even though you'll learn next time not to undercook your chicken. Yeah. And maybe there is an element of that of going, actually, if we removed it and go, yeah, we accept that there's probably going to be issues on that pathway of them making mistakes, but actually how much better would they be for it? Yeah. Um, let's let's help them make more mistakes. Yeah. Like, you know, let's change change the game. Come on, let, let's change the game by making it harder for them, rather than easier. Because yeah. then it'll be better for them. I think we've you know, certainly at Southampton we've we've done a 
couple of pre-season um, trips with the scholars now where they've been, and it's been brilliant. They've been given some money and given a rendezvous point and told, right, get yourself there. And if you get there, then you can do pre-season. Like things like that, that's brilliant. Because then they've got to go, oh, right, how am I going to get there? Am I going to take a train or a bus? Or... This is the sort of stuff that, you know, I just think if we're not doing things like that, we're letting them down. Because, yes, if if by the tiniest of margins they genuinely carve out a 15-year career in Premier League football, they're not going to need these skills because they're going to have loads of money and they'll be able to employ people who do it for them. But statistically, come on, the chance of, unfortunately, the reality is they're not going to be a Premier League footballer. They're very unlikely to be. I mean, I, I've got all the stats. It's it's not it's not it's not a very likely thing to happen, and if you track it right back to nine year olds, I, I saw. I think the most recent stat I saw was any nine year old that enters a football academy has a zero point zero five percent chance of making a career in the game, and when it and making a career may, includes semi pro. So. I've got a I've got an eight year old lad actually who really likes football. So if if he was invited into Saints Academy, he would have a zero point zero five percent chance of even being a semi pro. So it's not a I don't think us building towards him being a Premier League footballer is actually a very sensible thing to do. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try and help him have the skills to become. He's more like, you know, he's more like a teacher or, you know, or uh, a dustbin man than he is a, a Premier League footballer. So if we systematically remove all the other development experiences that he needs to be a teacher or a dustbin man, then we're doing a disservice, aren't we? Um, it's actually, you can put it the other way and go, what a fantastic tool football can be to teach him all of these lessons, something that he loves. And you know, as you said, we are very well resourced. So ability to go away with his friends and stay overnight places and, oh. you know, meet new teams and play against things and play in stadiums. Actually, let's flip it on its head and do it that way and go loads of great learning experiences for a boy that otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity to have them. Amazing. Yeah. And I'm a massive advocate of, of having academies. I think, you know, if you've got a kid who's passionate about football and you can systematically introduce him to amazing events and experiences that give him skills in life with his mates it's the biggest privilege in the world isn't it so we just have to i I think the flip is what are we doing it for we we need to flip it like you've said there righty we we can help each lad have an amazing experience and come out with the skills that will leave them in a really good place for life in general if if during that journey We've not helped them understand how to take a train or wash their clothes or understand finance and stuff like that. Then, you know, we're not giving them the skills, are we? Perfect point to end on. So, Bruncher, I've got one last question for you, which is who is the best player or coach you've worked with or against and why? And good luck with this question. Oh, my word. The best player or coach you've worked with or against and why? Oh, my word. Um, I wish you'd have asked me this before we did the podcast so I could have had a think about it. I mean, I'm so privileged. This is going to sound like I'm so privileged, right? I mean, I've worked with 
and again, you know, I've, I've, so I've played against Shane Warne, Steve War, uh, was I played with Wazzy Macram, <laughs> you know, uh, played against Brett Lee. I've worked with Andy Flower, um, you know, coached with Peter. I've, I've been very lucky. I've been exposed to a lot of top top people. Um, so I can't think of the best. I mean, is there a why about, then? So you talk about um, all those people. Is there a why? Is there something that stands out for you and your character as to why they were such brilliant people in their fields? Yeah, I do think I do think there's a theme. Um, we've talked about Warney. Warn is you know undoubtedly one of the world's best sports people of all time. You know he's he's right up there. Um, and it's he loves cricket. He just loves the game, and that's what it starts with. Is an absolutely deep-rooted, authentic passion for the game, which meant he was incredibly curious about how to bowl leg spin. He practiced an enormous amount, and he became incredibly good. Um, again, like Andy Flower loved batting. Absolutely, and that's why he became the best batsman in the world at the time. And then he started to look into coaching and leadership, and he absolutely loved coaching and leadership, and that's why he had such outrageous success. So like, I'll, I'll, I'll go with those two, if you'll allow me, Warren and Flower, um, because and, and at the heart of it, it's just their genuine passion for what they're doing, and, and then their mindset towards getting better at it perfect listen brunch you really appreciate your time we haven't talked about half the stuff that we <laughs> discussed previously as i knew would happen so um hopefully at some other point in the future we can come on and talk about your olympic sports time and all that type of stuff but yeah really appreciate it and catch up with you soon Top man. cheers righty Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.